Hi there. Thank you for choosing to listen to this sermon. We pray that God would use this as an added resource to benefit you in conjunction with you belonging to a local church near you. This sermon was preached at Central Baptist Church, Pretoria. 130 years of believers loving God, caring for one another, and impacting the world. Way of identifying the Bible is to just call it the mouth of God. So we want to turn to the mouth of God this morning. And uh, back to Exodus. So we're back in Exodus chapter 20, and uh, just the ninth commandment, verse 16. Just going to read the one commandment uh, this morning. You just find that place. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Perhaps I'll even read it again. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. May you, our Father, speak to us, uh, continuing to pray, Lord, for your name to be exalted. And Lord, has become a desire to grow in our relationship with you. And even as we consider this particular commandment, our fellowship with you in the days of our lives, we pray. And so asking again that your spirit, your Holy Spirit, work through the preaching of your word in each of our hearts, we pray. Amen. Well, it's been a while since we've been in Exodus, uh, holiday time and other matters that we've been dealing with. And uh, we have for some, we had for some weeks been focusing on the Ten Commandments. And so I thought this morning it would be good to remind you, just in my introduction, of the value of the Ten Commandments. Why, why would we study the Ten Commandments? And there are many reasons, but I'm going to focus on one of those reasons in this introduction. I want you to imagine, take a moment to imagine a patch of ground. Now, I was thinking before I was preaching, we can't be imagining this patch of ground next to us because it's a beautiful lawn. I'm thinking more the patch of ground on the property behind us. The patch of ground overgrown with weeds. It's, it's rough. It's unpleasant. Uh, I think I'm not an expert, but I would imagine there's some uh, cocky boss and blackjacks, and paper thorn. I certainly have those in, in my garden. And, and, and as we imagine that patch of ground uh, filled with all sorts of weeds, the problem is that these weeds are competing against anything of value, any crops uh, that we may want to plant. We aren't going to find wheat or, or millies growing naturally next door to us on that particular patch. And so what I discovered just from a biological point of view, a botanical point of view, I guess, is that weeds compete with crop plants for water, for nutrients, for space, and for light. In other words, the point I'm trying to make is that weeds are destructive to life. So to turn that weed patch, if we want to do something about this property next door and we want to turn it into a fruitful, life-giving garden, there will need to be some active, radical intervention. It's not just going to happen in and of itself. We would need to intervene to eradicate, to remove the presence of the weeds, to be able to turn it into a lush, 
vegetable patch filled with cabbage and carrots and spinach and I don't know what else one would want to grow in the vegetable patch. Now here's what I want you to think about in addition to that. Any gardener knows that it doesn't end with initial intervention. In a few days, perhaps in a few weeks, you go out and you look at your garden that you've intervened in to try and produce this beautiful vegetable patch and there are weeds standing 300 millimeters, one foot tall. They just appear. The weeds appear. And so the good gardener knows that he can't just leave those weeds. He constantly needs to be eradicating them. He needs to be pulling them out. And then, of course, that's not all. I've noticed in my garden at home, (laughs) I don't even know where they come from. But every morning, if you go out and you've just weeded your garden, you'll find those little ones. Am I right? Little ones, they're forever appearing. We don't know where they come from, why they appear, but they're there. These little weeds appear, it seems, from nowhere. And again, the good gardener knows it's a daily necessity to pull out these little weeds. Now, I would love a beautiful garden, but there's a problem. There's a problem. I can't tell the difference between khaki boss and carrots. And that's the genuine truth. I don't know what is a genuine plant and what is a weed. And so if I ever hope, maybe you're the same as this, to cultivate a beautiful garden, I need to learn, and I, I, I must never forget, how to identify the weeds. And so using that analogy, and I want to now turn in a far more significant way, The cultivation of a life with God, in our cultivation of a holy life, the Ten Commandments identify the weeds. That's a very, very important thing to remember about these verses that we've been looking at. The Ten Commandments show us the weeds of sin that need to be eradicated in our lives. Now, the first four commandments, it's been a while. Remember, identified destructive ways that sin, that these weeds alienate us from God directly. We must avoid. The next six commandments identify also that which is displeasing to God, which is grievous to God, but speaks about the behavior, the, the, the wrong kind of behavior, the sinful behavior toward each other that we need to avoid. And so I want to focus this morning on this ninth commandment, and uh, I want to show you that this commandment in the first place identifies what I'm calling the sin of injustice. Keep that in your mind, the sin of injustice. There's a a definition that I found helpful, Uh, important when we understand or we seek to understand Scripture, go to the immediate context. What is it that... Uh, was intended when Moses wrote the Ten Commandments. Well, Philip Ryken says the immediate context of this commandment is a court of law. It governs the legal testimony that a witness gives in a public trial before a jury. So we've got to think back now, many thousands of years. Unlike today, if you've been charged with a particular crime, you have some kinds of protection. One thing today is you're innocent until proven guilty. 
Another thing that we have today in the context of, of, of the legalities is that we have forensic science. Uh, people uh, check fingerprints. Uh, people check DNA testing and, and that kind of thing. Did you know that back in the ancient world, world people were considered guilty until proven innocent? The role of the witness, this is an important thing that we need to understand as we seek to apply this scripture, is the role of the witness carried a life or death responsibility. Now in Israel, and of course in the wisdom and providence of God, it was provided that a charged person appear before a jury of elders but there always had to be more than one witness. Just to give you one indication, Deuteronomy 19.15, only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. We do know, perhaps just to remind you this morning, that God is just. He is a just God. And so because he is a just God, he requires that justice be exercised amongst his people as they appear before, in this particular context, uh, a jury of elders. And so in the commandment, he is identifying the need for integrity, the need for honesty of any witness, and also showing something of the weight of responsibility that the witness carries. Now, in our legal system today, uh, we're supposed to apply a similar principle. I think most of us will know, probably from TV shorts or movies that we've watched, uh, urging men and women who are brought as witnesses to speak the truth and nothing but the truth. Everybody knows that. The point is, so much is at stake on the basis of the words of a witness. Now, let me give you some examples. I just heard this Thursday... Uh, my son was sharing with me a story uh, of a man who had served 12 years in prison, and then it was discovered that the witnesses had lied. Can, can you see something of the, the weight of importance of, of somebody bringing testimony in a case? Then I also look back into the Bible, into the Old Testament. And I don't know if you remember the story of Ahab, greedy Ahab, who wanted Naboth's vineyard. And he went off and sulked because Naboth wouldn't sell it to him. And, and his wife Jezebel said, don't worry, I'll make a plan. And so she made a plan. She sent a message to the local leaders and said, well, just gather together two witnesses. And she called them two worthless men. And these two worthless men accused Naboth unanimously of blaspheming God and the king, and they stoned him to death so that Ahab could get the God. Injustice was done. We come to the Lord's table today. Unanimity amongst false witnesses played a role in the trial of Jesus. Isn't that true? And if you think about Stephen, the first martyr that we read about in the book of Acts, he too lost his life because of false witnesses. The point being that witnesses brought into a court to testify against an accused person in a particular case could hold the decisive sway over life and death. And so justice must be served. This is the meaning of the commandment. It must be served with truth, and the abuse of, of the sin of injustice 
must be eradicated. Now, here's the problem. And I know many of you are saying, what on earth has this got to do with me? Because I thought about Central Baptist Church. We have one policeman, and I think we've had a few lawyers. One lawyer that I'm aware of sitting here this morning, and over the years we've had a few lawyers in the church. Most of us have never ever been into a court of law. So what, what business have we got spending time on this particular commandment? It's easy for us to switch off. Simply say that this commandment doesn't apply to us. Well, while you've never been, or you may never be, called to be a witness, to stand in a court of law, I want to tell you this morning that you and I still have a job to do weeding out the sin of injustice as it grows in the other parts of the garden. There are other instances where the sin of injustice must be applied or is applied. And it happens in the way that we use words about other people, the way we use words to other people. So in reality, we all suffer with leanings of the same problem as those who bear false witness. We suffer with the problem of committing the sin of injustice. And I want to quote an old author, one of my favorite older authors, uh, Thomas Watson. He says, like those people spoken about in this commandment, you have a tongue. Everybody has a tongue. This is what he says about the tongue. The tongue, which at first was made as an organ for God's praise, is now become an instrument of unrighteousness. This commandment, number nine, binds the tongue to good behavior. God has set two natural fences to keep in the tongue, the teeth and the lips. And this commandment is a third fence set about it that it should not break forth in evil. So, so how do we apply that? How do we consider this this morning? Well, I want to show you practically this morning, and, and it, it's one of those messages that can have many, many applications. I'm going to restrict the application to some of the more common areas. The tongue is put to use in committing the sin of injustice by engaging in slander. Again, Watson, man, if you want to read some good Uh, exposition. Read Thomas Watson. Thomas Watson says of slander, like the scorpion that carries his poison in his tail, the slanderer carries his poison in his tongue. What what is slander? Well, slander occurs when we report or we say things about or to other people unjustly. It involves words spoken intentionally, deliberately. It's about spreading words to do harm and to discredit someone else. It's an effort to break down. It's an effort to undermine a particular person in the eyes of someone else. So next time, and, 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 and I think this is something we all uh, can be guilty of or, or could be participating in. Next time you're tempted to, to, to say to someone, have you heard, have you heard? I want you to remember, I certainly want to remember this statement, another statement by Thomas Watson. He says, he that raises a slander carries the devil in his tongue. But then he goes on and he says, he that receives it carries the devil in his ear. Folk, in our pursuit of righteousness, the weeding out of slander 
is important. We ought to remember words. There are many words I could quote, but let me quote the words of the psalmist, Psalm 15, where the psalmist asks, Who shall sojourn in your tent? He's speaking to God. Who shall dwell in your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly, does what is right, and speaks truth in his heart. Listen to this, the third verse. Who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach. So slander is a weed that we identify, we need to look out, we need to consider, is it growing in our hearts? The tongue is also put to use in committing the sin of injustice by engaging in misrepresentation. A bit of a difficulty here because I have had some experiences in the course of my ministry of being misrepresented, but I didn't want to put anybody in the public eye. So I'm going to avoid or not share an illustration. But it, it does happen. It often happens, even in the course of the church, where there is a distortion of truth that represents or misrepresents a person and puts them in the bad light to someone else. Puts them down. It, it's often said, I've heard many people say this, and I believe it's true, that perceptions, what we perceive being told to us, we perceive that to be true. But it may not be true. And so by creating false impressions of someone is to treat that person unjustly and hurting their reputation. And then there's a third area. The tongue is put to use in committing the sin of injustice by engaging in lying. I think this is a general category. It's a general sense of the sin of injustice in plain language, just the activity of lying. And there are many ways that we are tempted to lie. In a theosaurus, uh, I jotted down an impressive list of synonyms for lying. A falsehood can be described as an invention about someone else, an equivocation, in other words, not taking a stand on a particular uh, issue about a person, a falsification, a fabrication. Isn't it true that the weeds of dishonesty comes in different sizes. They're big lies, grand deceptions. They're little lies. We call them white lies. They're half-truths. They're flatteries. They're fibs. The weeds of deceptions occur when we overstate our accomplishments, when we exaggerate other people's failings, when we misquote or mislead or misinterpret, we twist other people's words. What's happening in all of these things? We're exchanging the truth for a lie. Now, that's the explanation. I jotted a statement down here. I tried to ask myself, am I guilty at times of this? And I concluded I am. And so I don't know about you, but, but these weeds so often are growing in the garden of my heart. And I'm asking you this morning, are they growing in the garden of your heart? Weeds can be left alone. But you know what happens? They spread. 
Man, I tried to grow lawn in my garden and I struggled. It doesn't want to grow. The weeds, they just grow. But for a garden to flourish, weeds have to be killed. What then must be done about the sins of injustice? And now this leads me to my second point. Exterminate the weeds. So I live uh, walking distance from Builder's Warehouse, Linwood Road, Builder's Express. And so just the other day I walked across the road to find an appropriate weed killer. And uh, went to my garage and I just checked the, the name and I purchased a product called Effecto Clear Up. And I was told that this would clear up the grass and the weeds that's growing in between my paving. Well, that's what you can do in your garden or in your paving. But what does the Bible have to say about killing sin? We're told quite emphatically, explicitly in Colossians chapter 3, it's the one passage I've picked on, there are others, where Paul simply says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. That which is of the flesh, that which is weedy. And then he, he states what they are. Now think about this in application in the current world that we're living in. Sexual immorality where people are excusing different aberrations of sexual expression instead of identifying it as that which is earthly. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness. Uh, on, on, the, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked, but you were living in them. Now you must put them all away. And then he comes up with some more anger, wrath, malice, slander, Obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which has been renewed after the image of its creator. So, so simply saying, and, and, and to take from this passage this morning, from the mouth of God, sin must be exterminated. All the versions of the Bible, those of you who read the King James Version, speak about mortifying sin make it into a corpse the ESV uses the phrase put to death the process of killing sin now this is an important uh, I think clarification that we need to make the process of killing sin is not a journey into legalism so I'm not simply telling you this morning you've got to do this and don't do this and, 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 and putting on you a weight of legalistic living now I want to quote another old author by the name of John Owen. This was such, such, an, important, such an important discovery and, and reminder to me. John Owen pointed out that killing sin is a necessary tool in our pursuit of communion with God. That's the issue. This is not about legalism. This is about your fellowship. It's about your walk. It's about your connectedness, about your experience with God. An article that I read on the Desiring God website discussing Owen's book. He has a book, by the way, called The Mortification of Sin. And uh, this article comments on, on the book, and, and this, is, this was a helpful comment I thought I could share with you. Owen knew that while God's love for us, his people, is never contingent upon our faithfulness. In other words, God doesn't love you because you do certain things. 
There's grace. We're going to see that just now. This is what he says. Our experience of communion with God can be helped or hindered by how we deal with our sins. Now, if you're feeling distant from God, you need to listen to this this morning. Why is it that there is this lack of connectedness, lack of communion, lack of fellowship? And he goes on, he says, ignoring or downplaying our sins tends to harden our hearts and deaden our awareness of God's presence and His activity and His comforts. We must therefore constantly remind ourselves that mortification matters, not to keep an abstract law, but to pursue our very life in God with our neighbors. Well, the starting point, and I want to go to a process now. The starting point in this process is not a principle of death, but of life. And I've called it uh, as a step, killing sin starts with new life. You see, folk, the natural heart, each individual person, is like a patch of ground covered with weeds, also with the capacity to produce weeds. Again, a description from the Bible, Ephesians chapter 2, speaking of these believers before they were believers, describing the weed patch. He says, you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, weeds, following the prince of the power of the air, weeds, and the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedient weeds. Do do, do you see what Paul is saying? Unconverted people have a problem of weeds and weeds and weeds and more weeds. There's a problem. Dead to God. Each person born, dead to the life of God, dead to the fellowship and communion with God, dead to the ways of God. But, because of the love of God, the atoning work of Jesus, Paul is able to say to them, but God being rich in mercy because of great love which he had for us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. In other words, there's been radical intervention. Salvation is of the Lord. God transforming a weed patch, many of you here this morning, into a fruitful garden. And so, and by so doing, the process of cultivating and nurturing a holy life in communion with God begins. The believer, now a new creature. I love that verse in Ephesians 2 verse 10. Created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Produce vegetables and fruit. We are not perfect creatures after conversion. Transformation in the new life of a believer is a lifelong process. If you just recently become a believer, you're hard at work in weeding. And those of us who've been along the road for 40 and 50 years, we're still weeding because those little weeds still keep appearing. And when we neglect God, the long weeds appear and we've got to rip them out. We must weed out, put to death what is earthly in us. And so killing sin starts with becoming a believer. 
And the challenge is, are you a believer? Number two, killing sin is an ongoing activity with help. So you and I as believers have to go about a process of daily being conscious of the presence of the Holy Spirit who is in us, having learned an important lesson. Here's a great lesson that the Apostle Paul has taught in chapter 8 of Romans verse 13. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. Neglect your pursuit of holiness. Stop weeding. That's what he's saying. You will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So Jesus told his disciples what the Holy Spirit would do when he came. Uh, John chapter 16, verse 8, when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin, weeds, righteousness, and judgment. Now, how does, how does the Spirit work? How is he at work among us here this morning? Well, if, if you're a true believer... Day by day, I'm telling you now, this is the truth. If, if your heart is tender towards God, the Spirit of God will make you conscious of your sin. And He will do so progressively uh, over time. He will stir in you and convince you of the ugliness of it and that it grieves the, the heart of a holy God, that it's contrary to the will of God. And, and he, will, he will not only convict you and convince you, and, and, and like Isaiah, oh, I'm a man of unclean lips. He will, he will direct you to, to the cross, to Jesus, to the reality that, that sin has been atoned for. Reconciling you constantly in this walk and relationship with God. Fostering communion with the Lord. Now, putting it differently, having identified the weed and the weeds through the word by the spirit, pluck it out, acknowledge it for what it is and put it to death. Now, I must conclude. The threat and attack of sin, maybe younger people, boys and girls learn this lesson, never ends. Don't think that the pastors and elders of this church are ever without struggles with sin. It never stops. Here's a one-liner. If you forget everything today, I've said to you, don't forget this line. This is a, a John Owen statement. Be killing sin, or it will be killing you. Be killing sin, or it will be killing you. What are the sins? Well, I quote them again, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from the mouth. Two illustrations in my conclusion. Left alone, sin will grow like mold. Now, we don't, I was thinking about, my eldest son lives in Peter Maritzburg, and it's very moist in Peter Maritzburg, especially on the north side where there's a forest. And I noticed the mold on his roof and on the woodwork. And it's an old house. And it's beyond redemption. Here's <laughs> the point. Left alone, sin will grow like mold, and the damage quickly becomes very difficult to repair. 
you will no longer be cleaning surfaces, but having to rip out walls, which will be far more painful if you have noticed and dealt with it earlier. Just an illustration to remember. Here's another one going back to the weeds. Uh, See that sin is like weeds growing in a garden. Unattended, they will take over and choke out the beautiful flowers and fruits. A good gardener always pulls out the weeds, even while cultivating the good fruit. I'm so glad God has given to us the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit continues to work in the life of the believer, planting, producing, convicting. But dear friends, also giving us the power to pull out those invasive weeds attacking the garden of our hearts. And so really a question in closing, and and I think a right question as we come to the table. Are you regularly going about weeding the garden of your heart? That's, That's the message. Now, I've used this illustration today in application to commandment nine. It applies to all others. Are you weeding, constantly weeding, eliminating, eradicating, mortifying, killing the sin that so easily crouches at the door. Lord, I pray for us yet today, uh, struggling, Lord, in this life, but also taking great comfort in knowing that, that you who began a good work in us, that radical intervention, we thank you for that, continue to carry it through to completion. And so we thank you too that you will hold us, the Father's hand, the Son, your hand, the analogies we have of of you keeping us on this journey. But Lord, help us also making decisions, taking responsibility day by day, week by week, weeding out that which hurts our fellowship with you. And so even as we come to your table, May we be actively searching and confessing these sins to you, we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon. Find out more about Central Baptist Church at www.central.org.za.